Father, as we come to you this morning, uh, we want to first hear from you. In fact, before any of us open up our, our mouths to speak, uh, we want to hear from you. Uh, we want to sing to you. We want to make much of you. We want to be changed and transformed uh, through your Spirit who's at work in us as he reveals Christ to us through your word. And so, God, as we look today to this text from Mark 9, may we, like this hurting father, may we also say, I believe, but help our unbelief. And so, God, may we see that the, the strength of our faith is found in the object of our faith, not in ourselves. So, God, be praised and glorified and made much of this morning as we look to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, most of us know the feeling of being snapped back into reality. Uh, typically, that expression is used when uh, maybe after a moment or a season of, of peace is experienced, you kind of come back face-to-face with trials or conflict, difficulty once again, hardship. And it reminds you once again of the brokenness and the hardness of, of the world. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I was able to attend uh, the Together for the Gospel conference down in Louisville with a few other guys from the church here. And so for about three days, we were just able to get away uh, we were able to worship Jesus together with about 12,000 other brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we laughed a lot. We ate really well together. We sang together. We sat underneath incredible preaching together. We encouraged one another as we talked about uh, what, we were, what we were learning and what we were hearing. Uh, it was just a great time it was, and just kind of a, a break from, for me, just kind of my typical uh, responsibilities. But as soon as uh, I returned home, I'm faced with life again. Faced with the, the highs and lows that come with just within ministry. This idea of, okay, there's work to be done. Now, a lot of us probably experience that, that feeling when we come back from family vacations or maybe just a quick weekend getaway with your spouse. Whenever we're able to just get away to be refreshed and renewed, we, we also know that the clock's ticking, right? right? And we're going to be returning back to reality. The pressures of life, the stress of life, the conflict of life, the brokenness of life. And no more clearly is this reality seen than in Mark 9 that we've read here this morning. And keep in mind what we read and studied through last Sunday as well. Verse 14 says that when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. So if again, you recall from last week, we walked through the transfiguration of Jesus. So, so in that moment, on top of that mount, Jesus is changed for a, for a moment. And those three disciples that were with him, Peter, James, and John, they see Jesus in all of his glory, right? So they're seeing a snapshot. They're, they're seeing a foreshadowing of the glory which is to come. They saw him truly in that moment as he's transfigured before them as king, as Lord, as God Almighty, they experienced on that mount both Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus. They heard the audible voice of God speaking to them from a cloud. Maybe this is where we get the phrase mountaintop experience. But either way, you can just imagine, or can you just imagine, the thrill that these disciples were feeling afterward. Can you just picture with me that descent down the mountain? The questions they must have been asking the discussions that they were having with each other. Can you believe what we just saw? Can, can we go back to that, right? This longing, like, I don't want to leave that. That's, I want to be there. Even though they still didn't understand it all, but man, they must have felt like as they were coming down that mountain, like they were floating. And what do they walk into? Well, we just read in verse 14, conflict, arguing, 
religious leaders attacking the disciples that were there. I mean, right back into, from the mountaintop experience, right into the brokenness of the world. A child possessed. It's a snap back into reality. It's that reminder to them and to us that glory is not yet fully come. There's still suffering. There's still sin. There's still brokenness in this world and within ourselves. We all feel that. So, so where do we find then the power and the strength to persevere? The, the transfiguration of Jesus was this foreshadowing of the glory to come. Jesus' mission, like we talked about last week, was suffering first, glory later. He suffering, his suffering, and it, it led him all the way to the cross. And then in his resurrection, he was glorified and he was exalted. And like Jesus, we are called to follow him, which means for us, it's suffering first, glory later. It means like Jesus, we too are to take up our cross daily. We're to die to ourselves and follow him. And like Jesus, there's coming a day for, for those who do belong to him where, where we will be glorified. That's what Romans 8 verse 30 talks about. Romans 8 30, when, when it says that, that those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glory is coming. So certain is our glorification that Paul writes as if it's already taken place. That's the certainty we have in Christ, yet we also know and feel glory has not yet come. But there's coming a day when it will take place and where we'll finally be freed from sin, from death, to forever live the, the mountaintop experience with Christ in all his glory. But until that day, we persevere. We endure in a world in need, keeping our eyes on him. So again, we ask the question, where do we find then the power, the strength to persevere? What often is the reason for our, our, our failure to endure? What hope do we find in Christ through pain and through hardship? See, Mark's aim, I believe, here in this text is to reveal the sufficiency of Christ in the valley of life. So let's seek to answer these questions from the text this morning from Mark 9. Let's first look at the problem that we all face. Let's look at the problem that we all face. So we've already touched already this morning on the conflict that Jesus and these, these three disciples are immediately being thrust into. The, this conflict that they're walking into as they descend this mountain. So they're coming from the mountaintop into the valley. But, but what specifically is the issue at hand that the scribes are arguing with the disciples about? And, and what's the true underlying problem that we see in this that affects actually all of humanity? So, so going to verse 16, Jesus walks into this issue, walks into the scuffle, and he says, okay, what, what are you guys arguing about? What's, what's the problem? And we see the answer in verse 17 and 18. So it says that someone from the crowd answered him, said, teacher, I, I, I brought my son to you, for he has a, a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and it becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. They were not able. Well, here we go. Here's the problem. Jesus comes face to face once again with this great enemy of God. He comes face to face with the demonic world, Satan himself. These demonic powers which have wreaked havoc on God's good earth, amongst God's creation. We've seen encounters like this already in Mark's gospel. We saw it in Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 5 that, that Satan is this, this absolute hater of God and that Satan's motivation is to destroy the image of God in mankind. 
right? The, the, the Satan's aim, the demonic realm's aim is to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus says as much in the Gospel of John when he says that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He says, but I've come, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So just taking even one of these encounters that Jesus has already had in Mark 5 with this demonically possessed individual, Jesus encounters this demon-possessed man who was living out amongst the tombs, and day and night he was crying out, and people were avoiding this area. He'd been chained, but he was breaking the chains, and so nobody wanted to come near him, and he would bruise himself and cut himself with stones. And that encounter, as soon as, as Jesus removes these demons, remember his, their name was Legion for their many, right? He removes these demons that were possessing this individual, this man. and They're removed and they enter into this herd of pigs on the mountainside or on the cliffside. And as soon as they do, if you remember that story from Mark 5, they instantly run down the side of a cliff and they run into the sea and they drown. So you see in that moment Satan's intention, the motivation to kill and destroy well, it's here again that we see this great enemy of God up close once again. This young boy has been overtaken. He's been possessed by demonic influence. Father says when it seizes him, it harms him. It is distorting and perverting the image of God in humanity. This is what Satan does. And if you jump down to verse 22, you see once again Satan's aim, which is to kill and destroy. The father sees as much. It says it often casts him into fire and into water. Why? To destroy him. Satan knows that he cannot overcome and overthrow God himself, and so anything that he can do to distort or damage the image of God in humanity is considered a victory in his mind. Church, may we never take too lightly the demonic influence that is in the world today. We do face a real enemy, a real enemy who is determined to undermine and to destroy anything that he can get his hands on. And far too often, and God help us, we, we fight the wrong enemy. We fight and struggle amongst ourselves and, and amongst others and forget that there's a real enemy out there who's seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And so the Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, he reminds us, put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Here's the reminder, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Apostle Peter reminds us as well to be, to be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. His aim is to steal and to kill and to destroy and not only do we have an enemy roaming this earth seeking to cause destruction, but we ourselves are, are still flawed and prone to, to wandering and drifting away from Christ. Right? Our own sinful flesh is, is oftentimes our greatest enemy. Like the lyrics of that well-known hymn, Come Thou Fount, says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Right? Prone to leave the God I, I love. I, like I feel that within my bones at times. I feel at, at times this, this tendency to want to take my eyes off of the cross of Christ where forgiveness and where redemption is found and instead I begin to, to drift into self-righteousness, right? thinking I can earn, thinking I can do whatever's needed for right standing before God. 
to, to drift into thinking and believing, I don't really need him. I've got this all put together myself. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. See, sin and selfishness is woven so deeply into my DNA, woven so deeply into our DNA. In fact, it's been there since birth. See, in verse 21, Jesus asks this, this hurting father, he says, how long has this, this child been possessed? How long has this been taking place, happening in this, this young boy's life? And the father replies, he says, from, from childhood. I mean, what a, what a picture even that is. What a picture that is even of our own depravity from birth. That, that like the psalmist says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or the psalmist in Psalm 58 who says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. You see, apart from the intervening work of grace in our lives through the person of Christ, we are, we are by nature children of wrath. We are by nature under God's righteous condemnation for our sin and for our rebellion against a holy God. See, this is the problem we all face. This is reality. This is life in the valley. We're sinners in a world filled with sinners under the curse that sin brought that's also under attack from an enemy that's bent on destroying the image of God. This is why we find ourselves so often in the valley. And so being faced with that reality, we're desperately desirous of a solution to this problem. We want a solution. What's the solution? Bookstores are filled with man's solution to this problem. But we so often fail because we're not looking in the right direction. We often fail because we're not looking to the one who has actually overcome sin, the one who has actually overcome death, the one who has actually overcome and trampled over the devil. And that's point number two, the failure we often experience. You see, while, while Peter, James, and John were with Jesus on the mountaintop, the other nine disciples then were, were left down at the base of the mountain. And apparently, there was a crowd beginning to gather. So people began to recognize them as disciples of Jesus. And so crowds began to form. And so uh, just like what we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, they're probably bringing the sick. They're bringing the possessed to them for healing. Right? And, and all of a sudden, the crowd shows up. And so the religious leaders begin to show up. And, and so you can just see right this, this conflict which is beginning to brew. But, but Mark here records this, this one interaction that, that these nine disciples had with this father. This father and this young boy who was possessed. And, and apparently, as we read from the context here, through most likely several attempts, probably made by all of these nine disciples that were still there, they still couldn't get this evil spirit to depart, right? So, so one tries, and then the other is like, okay, let me, let me give it a shot. And okay, man, I can't do it. And then the other guy comes up like, maybe I can do it. And so they're going through maybe the ranks, and none of them can get this evil spirit to even listen to them. And so this is probably most likely where the scribes see, oh, here's my opportunity. Just like we've been saying, we're going to jump in. We're going to begin accusing them. Right? We're going to question their authority. We're going to begin to question Jesus' authority. You can just hear the argument. You can hear the accusations flying from the religious leaders, these scribes here. You guys don't know what you're doing. You're just a bunch of frauds. 
right? And so this is the scuffle that Jesus and the three disciples that were with them walk into. And so this hurting father comes to Jesus and tells them, here's what's going on. I brought my son to you and to your disciples, and they couldn't do anything. They couldn't do anything to help me. Can you almost see in this moment the, this father pointing to the disciples, maybe not in a, an accusative way, but just pointing to these disciples, these nine that were there. They couldn't do anything. They tried. They couldn't do it. And maybe most likely the disciples are sitting there. Maybe their heads are drawn down. They're confused. Maybe they said that maybe they tried to respond. Well, here's what. But more than likely, maybe they just stood there quietly and embarrassed because they couldn't help. And look at Jesus' response in verse 19. It's, it's really this, this sigh, kind of a deep groaning almost of emotional pain and, and dare we say it, maybe frustration. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. I think most parents have experienced at one point in time the sigh, right? And most children maybe have experienced from their parents the sigh. And what I mean by that, right? So your, your child does something wrong once again. And as you see them do whatever they do and, or didn't do, and before you say a word to begin to correct you sigh, right? And what is that? that that's a sigh, of, it's a sigh of exasperation, frustration. It's kind of a sigh of, we've, we've talked about this. We've talked about this how many times? When will you get this? Right? The, the sigh. Do, do you hear the sigh in Jesus' heart and his voice here? I don't think it's a sigh of, of anger. I think it's just a sigh of, Okay, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I think in Mark 6, Jesus, uh, if you think back to a couple chapters ago, Mark 6, Jesus sends these 12 disciples into the surrounding towns and the villages to teach and preach, right? And it says, what's he do? He says he, he sends them out and he says, I'm giving you authority to cast out unclean spirits. I'm giving you authority to go heal. And they go and they do it. And they come back and they're telling their stories. This is all the stuff we got to do. We cast out these demons and we're healing. And in Mark 6, he, he sends them. He, he tells them, don't take anything with you. And the, and the reason why he sends them with really nothing with them is, is so that they continue to learn. Okay, we need you to learn to lean on my sufficiency. Right? Lean on me. Right? Not yourself. Right? He sends them with nothing to say, I'm enough. I'll provide all that you need. And like I said, it says that they, they, they went out in the surrounding towns, villages, casting out demons, unclean spirits, healing many. And here we are just a few chapters later, and try as they might, they can't cast out this demon. I mean, without a doubt, they're sitting there confused because they're like, we've done this before. Right? We've done this. How many times? We, we talked, we just shared stories of, of, of casting out unclean spirits. What's going on? Why can't this happen this time? Well, we see what the problem is, and we... See maybe why, why Jesus sighs and why they fail, and we see it in, in Jesus' response. Like their failure wasn't that they, they didn't try hard. It, is, it wasn't that they didn't work hard in that moment. The problem was their lack of faith in a powerful God to give them all that they need. In, in Mark 6, it said, like I said, Jesus gave them the authority. Gave them the authority over the demonic realm. He's like, remember where your authority is coming from. It's not you. It's me. 
right? But, but what's happening here, we kind of even catch it a little bit at the end of verse 18 in the Father's response when Jesus asks, what's going on? Because the Father looks at the disciples and says, they were not able. They were not able to cast this demon out. Well, of course they were not able. It becomes even clearer at the end of this text in verses 28 and 29 when the disciples finally get away privately with Jesus and they ask him, they're like, okay, and good for them, but they come to Jesus like, what, what went wrong? What did we do wrong here? Why couldn't we do this? Why did we fail? Why couldn't we cast out this demon like we've done before? And you see what Jesus says in verse 29 that gives evidence of what they failed to do. He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, he's not classifying the different levels of demons as if some, some demons you can just cast out willy-nilly and others, man, you really got to pray. He's drawing their attention like, you are not resting in me. You were thinking you could do this in your own strength. He, he was saying to them in that, in that response, he says, guys, you were trying to minister to this hurting family in your own power, your own strength. You can't. Apart from me, you cannot do anything. Right? Again, what is What is prayer? Prayer is dependence upon a holy God. It's prayers to recognition that, that I'm weak and frail and, and helpless and needy and that God is strong and mighty and powerful and he's the great provider. The disciples forgot this. They were ministering in unbelief. Kent Hughes in his commentary says it this way. He says they, they believed in the process. They believed in themselves because they had done it previously but they were not resting their faith in Jesus. These are strong words for us to heed from Jesus this morning. Oh, faithless generation. We today have an abundance of resources at our, at our fingertips for ministry. I mean, seemingly an endless supply of books and apps and websites and conferences, all to help us grow into maturity and fullness in Christ. And, and don't hear me wrong, these are gifts given to us. But, but these gifts can sometimes tempt us to look internally rather than externally to Christ for power. See, here's how maybe this can manifest itself in our, in our lives. And it can seem so innocent, but yet it's so destructive. So, so maybe we have a need. Maybe we need help with parenting. We need help with parenting, right? Discipling our children. And so our first, our first gut reflex is to go buy the latest parenting book, right? Go, go listen to the newest parenting podcast that's out there. And then get to work, right? Rather than first getting on our knees, crying out to God and say, I need help. Help with my heart as I parent and disciple my child. Help with my child's heart. You can, you're the only one, God, that can, can actually reach their heart. Right? To, to seek first to hear from him through his word. Listen, books and podcasts and conferences, they're, they're gifts to us. But all those things must come underneath the authority of Christ and the spirit of God at work in our hearts. Or let me give you maybe, maybe another example. Maybe this one's maybe a little bit harder. We're faced with sickness. Maybe you're faced with disease, the threat of death, a global pandemic. And maybe we find ourselves spending more time at the altar of Google searching out remedies, solutions, more information, ways to make our lives more comfortable rather than just first coming to the Lord and saying, my life belongs to you. My life belongs to you. I'm trusting you as the great provider for all that I need. 
You might might take it all. Even so, you're still good. You're still on your throne. Help me believe. Now now listen, we are to walk in wisdom. We're, We're to use our minds. God's given us gifts to help us grow. We want to learn and grow and use the gifts God's made available to us, but but too often, I think we, we begin with the gift rather than the giver of the gift. And I think that's what the disciples were doing. They believed in the process. They believed in themselves because I've done this before. I, 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 remember, I remember I said these words to this one individual and the, and the demon left. So I'm saying the words again. Why is it not happening? Again, we can soften quickly turn internally rather than externally looking to God for our power. So then thirdly, let's look finally to the power we receive through Christ, which is what we see in this text. This helpless boy and father, they're, they're standing before Jesus. The boy is, is thrashing around on the ground as, as evidence, once again, of Satan's intense hatred for Jesus. In verse 21, you, you see the heart of Jesus revealed in, in this question they asked to his father, how long has this been happening to him? It's a question of compassion. Jesus' heart is breaking for this young boy, and his father's watched his child suffer for years. Don't, don't forget the humanity of Christ in this moment. If you ever struggle with wondering if Jesus ever cares about your suffering or your hurt, just read through the, the, the stories in the Gospels. You're always going to come away with seeing the heart of Jesus for those who are in pain. But this hurting dad, in, in desperation, says to Jesus, if, if you can do anything, help us. If you can do anything, help us. Notice very carefully Jesus' response in verse 23. It says, Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. So this father had just said to Jesus, your disciples couldn't do anything. They can't do anything, couldn't do anything. If you can do anything, help us. And Jesus, in in, in essence, his response to him is, listen, the issue at hand here is not my ability. Of course I can. But he's saying to this father, "The, the burden is on you to believe. In fact, he says all things, all things are possible for the one who who believes. You see, again, divine ability is not the problem. Man's unbelief is the problem. Jesus is calling this, this man to faith because I believe this is the main aim of this passage, but I believe that faith is the bridge between God's sufficiency and man's deficiency. Faith is the bridge between God's sufficiency and man's deficiency. That's it. That, I believe, is the point of this passage. And immediately upon hearing Jesus say this, all things are possible for the one who believes, he cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. And here's what he's saying. Here's what this father is saying in that moment. He's saying, I'm trying. I do believe. But I know my heart. You know my heart. And it's filled with doubt. I don't want that doubt to be there, but it's, it's there. I mean, this, this probably is one of the most maybe the most transparent and humble statements from any human being that's ever been uttered. Because Jesus just said to this, this father, believe and I'll heal your son. All things are possible for the one who believes. Now, most people maybe in that moment would say, okay, yeah, I believe, do it, right? Do it, I, yep, I believe, do it. But this man, he's like so honest with Jesus. He's saying, I, I, I do believe, I do believe. I, I also just saw your disciples, they couldn't do it. But, but I do believe, because I've, I've heard of what you can do. I do believe, but I'm, I'm struggling. 
I'm struggling. Will, will you help, help me to believe more fully? I want to. That's what he's saying. And what's Jesus do in the remaining verses? He heals. He, he didn't look to his father and say, well, once you go away, work on that for a bit. Get your faith figured out. Get it strong. Remove all doubt. And then come back and see me and we'll see what we can do. He doesn't do that. He, he heals. I mean, what's that teach us about our, our approach to God? How this father approaches this, this, this Christ? What's it teach us about our approach to God? I think some really, really good things. I have three really quick sub-points and then we'll be done. Number one, we want to approach God with humility. We want to approach God with humility. Maybe I would add even honesty. I've said it before like this, like nobody stands at the edge of the Grand Canyon or on the the shore of the Pacific Ocean or stares into a nighttime sky filled with stars and then beats their chest claiming their greatness. Like we do not approach a holy God beating our chest saying, look how awesome I am. We don't approach a holy God claiming our sufficiency and our might. There's no way we rightly can. It's laughable to even think we could. I mean, but in a world, in a, in a culture that pushes self-promotion and pushes personal branding and pushes self-exaltation, we as Christ ones, Christ called out ones, we live counter-culturally and instead we approach a holy God on our knees in humility and submission to his greatness, knowing he will exalt, he will lift us up. This is what the Apostle Peter talks about in his letter. He says, he says humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So we approach God with humility. We approach God with honesty. Number two, we approach God in our weakness. Again, Jesus didn't ask his father to go, go get rid of all his doubt first. Go get rid of all your fear. Go get rid of all your worry. Go get rid of all your sin first before I'm going to help you. He didn't say that. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news for us, church? That Jesus doesn't cast us, away, cast us away when we doubt or when we worry or when we're filled with anxiousness. That he doesn't tell us to go get clean first before we approach him. No, he calls us to come to him in our weakness, in our helplessness, looking to him as the great provider. Friend, if you're here this morning thinking that you've got your life in order and put together before God or thinking that that's what's required of you to get your life in order, or put together for God before he would ever accept you. Let the story of this father be good news to you that you can come before God as you are in your weakness, in your mess, and that he will accept you not based on your performance or not based upon how good you live your life or try to live your life, but, but he accepts you through faith in the life of Jesus in the performance and perfect life, death and resurrection of Christ. That God calls you, says, have faith in my son, not in you. And the, and the beauty of what we've read this morning is that the faith to believe, the faith which makes us right before God is not, is not based upon our strength or the size of our faith or the might of our faith, but rather, it's, it's rather based upon the object of our faith, which brings life, eternal hope, which is faith in Christ. See, weak faith Weak faith in a strong God is superior to strong faith in a non-existent one. You know what I mean? Like, like Jesus said, 
The, the faith of the size of a, a mustard seed can move mountains, meaning this. He's saying it's not the size of your faith that matters. It's who that faith is in that matters. So this hurting father's faith was small. It was the size of a mustard seed. Right? I, I believe, help my unbelief. You, you, you see the, the, the kind of the tininess even of that faith, but, but Christ is like, that's sufficient because it's in me. That, that faith was sufficient because his faith was not in himself. It was in Christ to deliver. That's what we need to see, and that's where we need to turn our hope to. Number three, then, we approach God or we trust God with that which is most precious to us. We see that as this man brings his hurting son, what's most precious to him, and lays him in the hands of Jesus. So we need to trust God with that which is most precious to us. He hands his son over to Jesus. And for a moment, do you catch that in the story? See, things seem to get worse. In verse 25, Jesus commands the spirit to leave. And what do we see happen in verse 26? It says, after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And it says the boy was like a corpse. So most of them was watching this happen. They said, he's dead. I mean, for a moment, this father and probably the people around him witnessing this thought, well, that didn't help, right? That didn't help. The boy's dead now, right? Following Jesus does not mean that everything in life will go just as you planned or hoped. Following Jesus certainly does not mean no suffering, no trials, no pain, no hurt. Surely, if you've been with us through the gospel, Mark, you've seen that by now. But what does happen as we joyfully submit to the Lordship of Christ and hand over to him that which is most precious to us is that even through suffering, through the pain, through the hurt, even through the loss, we see he's enough. He's enough. And he'll provide. And he will give grace upon grace upon grace. And that through the fire, he will increase your faith as you wait upon him, as you lean upon him. And that's what Jesus does here in verse 27. Peter, James, and John had to be thinking in that moment. When everyone else thought he's dead, they had to be thinking in that moment. Now, this is conjecture, but they had to be thinking, he's not dead. He's not dead. You just wait. Like they had just witnessed his glory. They had just witnessed the transfiguration of Christ. In their minds, they had to be thinking, Jesus does not fail. He's king. And in verse 27, what we see, Jesus takes this boy by the hand and lifts him up. See, the father had asked Jesus, help my unbelief. Jesus did just that. And he did it even through more suffering. But he increased his faith to believe in him. This young boy and father had endured horrible suffering. And through it all, they walked away from this moment with a grander view of Christ. And for sure, increased faith. When we hold on to what's most precious to us, whatever that may be, maybe that's our life, our families, our reputation, whatever is most valuable to us, whenever we make it ultimate, rather than Christ, we find then our sense of identity and our sense of security is in those things rather than in Christ. And so when suffering comes, when the fire comes, when we walk through the valley, then the threat of that is, is that it may be taken away. We become completely despondent, completely lost. Right? We'll find life almost to be unbearable because we're looking to those things rather than the one who sustains us. But when we, when we turn over our lives to him, that which is most precious to us, and we say, it's yours, you're enough. You're good. 
You are the great provider. My heart is weak. My heart struggles to believe, but this I know. You're all I need. Help me believe that. Then and only then do we find true freedom and joy, even through suffering. It's then that our faith is built up and increased. We all long. We all long and yearn for the mountaintop experience, don't we? We want that. That's where we want to be. We want to be on the mountaintop with Jesus and all his glory. It's where we want to reside. And that day's coming. It is coming for those who are in Christ. And God in his grace, even in this valley and in these seasons of life, will give us moments to foreshadow that which is to come, to give us that taste that, that God's good. But, but most of our life is going to be lived out in the valley. And so instead of us maybe trying to escape it, Jesus here calls us to endure it by faith as we walk with it, with him through it. Jesus has already gone before us. This is the good news. He's already gone through the valley before us. The victory is already ours. That's why, why I quoted Romans 8 at the beginning, Paul saying, listen, he, he, those whom he justified, he is also glorified. He's writing as if this has already taken place. The victory is ours because Christ has already purchased the victory. Christ has secured that victory through his life and death and resurrection. So through faith in Christ, we can endure with patience and even, even with joy. And so this morning, where are you not fully trusting Christ? When you say, I believe, but help my unbelief, what is that unbelief? Where is that? What are you still holding on to? Is it, is it, is it your family? Is it your career? Is it finances? Is it your health? Is it that you're too consumed with comfort to live radically and generously and sacrificially for the kingdom of God? How are you seeking to fulfill the great commission which Jesus left us and sent us to go make disciples of all nations, all people groups? That's going to take risk. That's going to take time. That's going to take our resources. That, that may take our lives. That which is precious to us, is Jesus enough? Most would say yes, but I think our response needs to be yes, but help my unbelief. Thank God that through our faith, though our faith may be weak, the object of our faith, Jesus Christ is strong. So God, help us to believe and then to go. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning wanting to just pause here for a moment and just rest in your sufficiency. Rest in your goodness. Father, I know the, I know the, the, the people that I'm speaking to. I know their hearts as best as I can from a human standpoint. I know that there's so many within this, this, this room this morning, them, so many that are watching here this morning online that would say, I, I, I believe. Like, they would say, no, my, my, my faith is in Christ. But, but maybe we need to pause for a moment to, to really truly examine our hearts to see, but where, where do we still have unbelief residing? Where are we still failing to rest and to trust? What are we holding on to that's, that's so precious that we don't want to turn that over to the Lord out of fear of what he might call us to do with it? So God, I, I pray that, that you would help our unbelief. Would you through difficulty and trial and through walking just through the valley of life. May you increase our faith as we look to you and not look for ways to escape, but look for ways to endure through, through the presence of Christ who's alive, who's purchased our victory. So God, help our faith, increase it. May we look to you. May you be the God that we behold and and rest in and stand in and say through, through highs and lows of life that you're good. 
you're all we need. So though you may bless us with, with great riches, maybe, maybe in turn say, but nothing compares to the, the riches of Christ, or you may, you may grant us poverty, but may we say in return that though I have nothing of this earth, I have all I need in Christ. May that be our heart as we're now then sent into a world to proclaim that message. So God, in this moment here, may we just confess and repent and just meditate upon these promises of who you are. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.